Thank you, Richard, for that kind introduction, and good evening, everyone. Uh, it's good to be with you, whether you're here in the building uh, or watching on YouTube. So we're continuing our study in the book of 1 Samuel, and this week we consider chapters 22 and 23. Next week, God willing, we will examine chapters 24, 25, and 26, and the two studies go hand in hand. Tonight, we're going to think about the problem to be solved, and next week, we'll consider God's solution to the problem. Okay. Now, to explain the problem, allow me to ask you a question. What makes societies go wrong? What causes them to break down into chaos? If you're not a Christian, you may have uttered an inward groan and thought to yourself, oh no, he's going to talk about sin. Well, here's a curious fact. Many young people today, young adults who utterly reject the Christian worldview and all its works, would answer my question by talking about sin. They would. The progressive left is very, very interested in sin. Its followers are downright moralistic. But when they talk about sin, they have in mind something completely different from the concept of sin that we find in the Bible. You see, it's common today to regard sin as a political or economic error. Sin, we are told, is a flaw in the political structures that govern how society works. We're told that there is a structural flaw in the way our political institutions have been designed, or there's a basic problem with our economic system. So salvation will only come when we restructure our politics and our economy. Now, that is not a new idea. Years ago, Karl Marx argued that sin was a fundamental unfairness built into the way societies operate. There was a structural problem in the way that the people who made stuff related to the people who own stuff. So he called upon the workers of the world to unite in a global revolution that would overthrow the old political and economic frameworks. Nowadays, Marx's ideas have had a bit of a refresh, but you find the same idea. Sin is a problem with our political and economic structures. So white men are deemed to have a structural advantage over oppressed groups like women or black people. Or it is argued our economy is designed to ruin the planet. Fix those problems and sin goes away. Only a revolution will allow us all to live happily ever after. Now Christianity understands sin in a different way. The Bible's analysis of sin doesn't start with political or economic structures. It begins by talking about personal morality. Personal morality in the heart of every individual person. In the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. It is the sin within our hearts which eventually causes the moral and spiritual foundations of a society to crumble. And it is that process, says the Bible, which leads to cultural collapse. Now, perhaps you're listening to me now, and you have much more sympathy uh, with the fashionable ideas of, of the progressive left. You're attracted to the idea of political and economic revolution as the best way to solve humanity's problems. You maybe feel a bit impatient when the old religious understanding of sin is mentioned. Well, I would simply ask that you park that prejudice for a little while and allow these ancient stories from 1 Samuel to speak for themselves. I'm going to suggest that the author teaches us two things from chapter 22 of the book. First, we're going to learn how sin destroys an individual personality, 
And second, we'll see how sin can undermine the foundations of a society. So to get underway, let's read 1 Samuel 22, the first eight verses. 1 Samuel chapter 22, the first eight verses. This is the word of God. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered round him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And Saul was seated spear in hand under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah, with all his officials standing by his side. He said to them, listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give you all fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie and wait for me as he does today. First Samuel, as you know, is dominated by the story of two kings, <clears throat> King Saul and the man who will replace him as king, the man called David. And at this stage in the story, David is living the life of an outlaw. Saul has become so obsessed with ending David's life that he's pursuing his enemy all around the south of Israel, forcing David and his little band of followers to live in caves and deserts. I find Saul to be one of the most interesting characters in all of literature. Now, we're nearing the end of his story, a story which will end terribly with the man taking his own life. If you're tempted to reject the Bible's understanding of sin, I, can I ask you to think first deeply about Saul, because he will explain to you why individuals go wrong, why their personalities can collapse into chaos. Saul gets introduced to us uh, as a rather naive, gauche young man. He had low self-esteem. When it came time for him to be crowned as king, he was so self-conscious that he hid himself among the baggage uh, of the uh, supply wagons. But as Abraham Lincoln famously said, if you want to test a man's character, give him power. And power caused a lot of deep character flaws uh, in Saul's personality to surface. And by the time we meet him in this chapter, and I'm sure you saw it, Saul is suffering from full-blown paranoia. Paranoid people feel threatened all the time. They believe that others are out to get them. So it's no surprise to see Saul sitting at the center of his royal court, clutching his spear. Saul didn't trust anyone, so he always kept his spear at hand, if you read through the book, never far from his hand. Now, think about that rambling monologue that we've just read. The king is convinced that everyone has conspired against him, even his own son, Jonathan. His mind obsessively turns over conspiracy theories. 
He's convinced himself that an ambush is just around the corner. Paranoia is a horrible feature of human life. Paranoid people always believe they are right. They are incapable of forgiving or compromising. They tend to be defensive, hostile, and aggressive. And these paranoid delusions grew out of two sins in Saul's life. Envy and the fear of losing power. Saul was envious of David. And the author of 1 Samuel identifies as the trigger for that envy. It was about sex. It's nearly always about sex. Saul wasn't envious of David's musicality. He wasn't even envious when David killed Goliath. The incident that caused envy to explode in Saul's heart was when he heard a group of young women singing a song. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul never gives any evidence that he understood or valued women. But he loved their adoration. I'm not sure he, he wanted a genuine relationship with a woman, but he definitely wanted to be admired by them. And so when he watched young women turn their adoring gaze away from him to David, something like hatred erupted in the older man's heart. Sex can make fools of all men, but there is no fool like an old fool. There is real peril in this situation. So allow me to be direct as I address older Christian men. If you are foolish enough to harbor the delusion that younger women find you attractive, then you need to repent. If your heart is starved with envy when you see young women glow in the presence of a handsome younger man, then you are a delusional fool who is walking the path of Saul. King Saul wasn't just envious. He was afraid of losing power. Scripture tells us explicitly that Saul was afraid of David. He was afraid of his own soldiers as well. In modern language, we might say Saul was at the mercy of public opinion. The man had no real convictions, and so he was terrified of being unpopular. There is only one way to overcome the fear of losing power, and that is to lose interest in holding power. And David, in contrast, is such a brilliant role model in these chapters because he refuses to just grab the reins of power. He only wants to be king when God gives the kingship to him. But Saul is terrified of losing political power. And so he sees conspiracy theories and cunning schemes everywhere. And it was those two terrible flaws, envy and the fear of losing power, that nourished the green-eyed monster in Saul's heart until it developed into this uncontrollable paranoia. And in the end, the destruction of Saul's personality could not be stopped. David tried to soothe him with, soothe him with a beautiful lyre music. In this chapter, in a few moments, we'll listen as the high priest attempts to deploy courteous and reasoned arguments, but nothing works against paranoia. In the chapters that follow, Saul quite often comes out with these pious statements couched in all sorts of religious language. He promises to repent. He promises to change his ways, but it's too late. The man has destroyed himself. Sin has wrecked his personality. I don't personally think we will ever meet Saul in heaven. 
He is a horrific case that he held up for us, a bit like the Pharaoh from the Exodus story. Now, as Christians, we can be assured that we will not share the fate of those men. We can know that we will receive entry into heaven. We'll never experience the penalty of our sin. But nowhere in the New Testament is it promised that we won't experience the consequences of our sin. Let me read you two verses from Galatians chapter 6. Paul is writing to Christians here, and he says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now note that was written to Christians. Sin destroyed Saul's personality. His epitaph is recorded in chapter 26. He said, I have played the fool. I have erred exceedingly. Do you want that on the headstone of your grave? The good news is it is not too late. Even this night you can repent of your sin. Repent of your fantasies, your stupid delusions and idolatries. Cry out to the Lord to drain the reservoirs of pride and arrogance that lurk in your heart. And then quietly, without fanfare, walk in step with the Spirit as He develops you into a man after God's own heart. So, so far in this chapter, we've seen how sin can destroy an individual, an individual personality. Now we're going to see how it can destroy a society. So let's read again in chapter 22, verses 9 through 23. But Doeg the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and all the men of his family, who were the priests at Nob. And they all came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. Yes, my Lord, he answered. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. The king then ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkey, and sheep. But one son of Ahimelech, son of Hattub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to join David. 
He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. We have just read one of the most vile incidents in the whole of the Old Testament. But we shouldn't see it just as a massacre of innocent people. It's important to remember the function of the priesthood in Israel's society. Way back in Exodus uh, at Mount Sinai, God sets up his divine law and the priesthood with all its sacrificial ceremonies and so on. And these moral and spiritual foundations were put in place centuries before kings were established. So let's think for a moment about the function of the priesthood. In the Old Testament, it was the priest's job to raise people's eyes from the soil of this material world, to lead them into the knowledge of God, to make the people sense the reality of God, to show them the wonder, um, the glory, and the majesty of God. The priest's role was to bring to people a sense of the overwhelming holiness and moral beauty of God Almighty. In the last book of the Old Testament, uh, the book of Malachi, the author says that the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. So the priest, in that sense, was the guardian of the holy things of God. So when a priesthood was doing his job properly, the nation would be led to worship the true and living God. He would become their ultimate value in life. His precepts would be the ordering principles on which their lives were based. Now let me rephrase that in more modern language. Israel's institutional life was built on the foundation of moral and spiritual realities. People's daily lives were illuminated and colored by the moral realities symbolized by the words and the actions of the priests. If you had been watching, if you had observed the central function of the priesthood, you would know that in Israel there was more to life than eating and drinking, more to life than power and wealth. Sacred concepts, sacred concepts like truth and justice and love were brought to life in the ceremonies and teachings given by the priests. So I hope you can now see the full horror of Saul's actions here. In destroying the priesthood, he is demolishing the sacred foundations of his society. From now on, there will be nothing but power and self-interest and money. No truth, no justice, just power. And as we read, that ghastly figure called Doeg the Edomite walks on stage. In the previous chapter, knowing the horrors that lies up ahead, the author tells us with terrible irony that Doeg was Saul's chief shepherd. <laughs> Doeg convinces Saul that Abimelech is in league with David. And so the poor priest was dragged into the king's presence. Now, as I said earlier, we learned something really important about dealing with paranoid people. You will have noticed Abimelech gave this courteous, rational defense, a whole series of impressive arguments that defeated Saul's conspiracy theories. David's been loyal to you forever, he says. He's your own son-in-law. He's the captain of your bodyguards. He's highly respected. But reason cannot defeat conspiracy theories. That's because paranoia is profoundly anti-rational. 
And so Saul's fear of losing power causes him to tear down every moral defense against savagery. His own generals and civil servants refuse his command to massacre the priests. And so the king's chief shepherd commits one of the worst crimes in the Bible. We see the priests standing there in their white linen, and soon those clean garments were stained by their own blood. But Doeg hadn't finished. He traveled to the priest's hometown and massacred everyone, old men, women, children, and infants, slashed to death by his sword. Now, it is impossible to read those verses without thinking of the genocides committed against the Jewish people in later history. If Saul is like Hitler in this story, then Doeg plays the role of Himmler. We could even direct our gaze into the future at this point. Because at the end of time, the final Antichrist will arise, and he will tear up every moral foundation. He will destroy all that is sacred. He will undermine faith in all spiritual realities. And in the end, the only currency that matters in Antichrist's economy is power. That is a hideous prospect. And that is how sin destroys a society. Remember, Saul isn't just murdering innocent people here. He's tearing down an institution. The priesthood was designed to help people live within a sacred space, to be continuously aware of moral and spiritual realities. And he's ripping all that up. Nothing is sacred anymore. Everything's just an instrument of power. You may have noticed in verse 13, Saul is angered at the thought that the priests were inquiring of the Lord on David's behalf. You see, Saul even saw the words from the Lord as an instrument of power. And so he became enraged at the thought that God might speak to someone other than him. Now, there is a terrible, a direct link from this terrible story to the world in which we live today. That jumble of blood-stained corpses dressed in white linen might seem far from us. But think of our own history. 300 years ago, philosophers tore up the moral and spiritual foundations on which Western culture formed. They destroyed the sacred space in which people lived and breathed. Christianity used to be the air that we breathed. We assumed that every person had intrinsic moral worth. We just assumed that human life was sacred. We believed implicitly in objective truth, in right and wrong. Our entire worldview was premised on a rational God who exercised justice. But now those foundations have been swept away. Society has embraced the lie that there is nothing to reality but physical stuff. There is no truth. Morality is just a social convention, like the offside rule in football. Laws aren't based on justice anymore. They're just commands issued by a ruling elite. And so we have built our new house on sand. And that is how sin destroys a society. Rip up every moral or spiritual foundation, and all you're left with is power. It seems to me that 1 Samuel's analysis of how a society collapses is much more profound than anything you might read in Marx. Now, I'm not denying that there are flaws in our political and economic systems, but the real problem is that we have ripped up the moral and spiritual foundations on which civilization was based. We're now living in a house built on sand. Well, you might be thinking, if that's true, why do so few people believe it? Why aren't more people arguing for the Bible's position? To explain that problem, we must now turn to chapter 23. Now, this chapter contains uh, two incidents. The first relates to a town in Judah called Keilah, and the second is about a group of people called the Ziphites.
but for the sake of time, we're going to largely ignore the Ziphites, notwithstanding their wonderful name, and we'll just read about the town of Keilah. So chapter 23, and we'll read the first 13 verses. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, go, attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, here in Judah we're afraid, how much more then if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, go down to Keilah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah. They fought the Philistines. They carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keilah. Now Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keilah. Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah, and he said, God has delivered him into my hands, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod. David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has definitely heard that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. And David asked, will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. And we'll finish there. The townspeople of Keilah don't come out of the story very well, do they? David was an outlaw, remember. He could have rubbed his hands in glee at the news that the Philistines were attacking Keilah, knowing that it would show up Saul in a bad light. But David shows real nobility and loyalty to his people. Although he's still an outlaw, he acts like a true king and defends the realm against the invading Philistines. Now, if this was a fairy story, we might expect the cheering townspeople to lift David on their shoulders and announce their loyalty to him. But in fact, even though he has just saved them, the citizens of Keilah get ready to hand David over to Saul. Now, if we had taken time to read the second story about the inhabitants of Ziph, we would have seen even worse behavior. These lovely people send a delegation to Saul and offer to portray David as an act of loyalty to Saul. Now, I imagine these stories are making your head scratch a little bit, because we aren't talking about the main characters here. The poor behavior isn't coming from military generals like Joab or Abner. It's ordinary people who are displaying this poor behavior. And that, I think, is the author's point. Go back to our earlier conversation uh, about Karl Marx's revolutionary ideas. You know that idea which says, if only we could rise up and fix the flaws in our political and economic systems, all would be well. But no, says Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. In other words, you can't fix society by getting rid of a few bad apples at the top of the barrel. That's why revolutions never work. Saul had reduced Israel's society to a culture that operated solely on self-interest. Everyone scrabbled for power, for maximum advantage. 
Everyone from the top general to the two beggars vying for the best spot on the main street. That's why Saul says in chapter 22, listen men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give you all fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? In a culture driven by self-interest, rulers use the carrot and the stick. As king, Saul could hand out goodies, all sorts of freebies to those who bowed low before him. And he could destroy entire villages of people who dared to stand up against him. And it seems to me that the author is showing us that those ghastly values had infected everyone in Israel. An entire culture lived solely on the principle of self-interest. Concepts like standing for truth or exercising justice, those sorts of ideas were just missing from everyday life. So people were blind to them. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, everyone looks out for their own interests. So perhaps we shouldn't be too hard on these townspeople from Keilah. They were glad that David had saved them from the Philistines, but that fight was now over. It would be downright foolish to get on the wrong side of a fight between David and Saul. So they made the rational choice based on self-interest. They sided with Saul. Now I hope you can now see just how difficult it is for God to save a society like that. The problem isn't a few bad apples at the top. The problem is that once a society's moral and spiritual foundations have been ripped up, then everyone lives for self-interest. That's the only value that's left. People become blind to concepts like truth and justice. In a dog-eat-dog -dog world, the only rational course of action is to avoid upsetting the biggest dog. I'm sure we've all seen that cynical positioning take place even in church life. Imagine there's a conflict brewing in a particular fellowship. Perhaps some elders have taken the lead in a change in fellowship life, but that change is being resisted by another group of members. Well, you're acting like the townspeople of Keilah if you, as it were, sniff the air to see which way the wind is blowing. In other words, you ask yourself, who's going to win this fight? And you then position yourself on the winning side. That is unspiritual thinking. The right question to ask is, what does Scripture say I should do in this situation? How do I obey truth in this moment? It is really dangerous to import worldly political thinking into church life. The Apostle Paul calls out that sort of poor behavior. He instructs us to avoid the divisive man. So if anyone ever sidles up beside you and asks, I wonder how many elders are really behind that decision? Walk away and avoid them like the plague because they think like Saul. So in these chapters, we've seen the sheer scale of the challenge God faces in saving us. Societies collapse when their moral and spiritual foundations are ripped up. And that leaves everyone in society, from the greatest to the least, at the mercy of cynical, cynical self-interested thinking. Everyone becomes blind to moral realities like truth and justice. Now, how can a society like that ever be saved? The full answer to that question will be given next week when we study chapters 24 through 26. But the basic approach can be found in these early verses of 23. Because David is a picture of the Savior, of the Messiah in these chapters. He is the anointed one. But we find him living like an outlaw with only a little band of followers who are loyal to him. And that is a pretty good picture 
of the way we live today. Christ is our King. He has come to save the world. But often it feels to the Christian that we're just a little band of outlaws being pursued by an elite that is determined to hunt us down. And we live in a culture where everyone is motivated by self-interest. David's followers weren't made of better stuff than the townsfolk of Keilah. You may have noticed when David tells them that he's going to save Keilah, they're deeply unhappy. We aren't even safe in the deserts of Judah, they protest, far less than Keilah. Self-interested thinking would have left them in the safety of their cave. But King David was rarely motivated by self-interest. And so he saved that town from the Philistines. Even when he knew he would be betrayed by the very people he had saved. That attitude is very close to the loyalty that Christ has for the human race. He comes into our world, a world where men are blind to every value other than self-interest, and he shows loyalty to men and women who are incorrigibly disloyal to him. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, says the Apostle Paul in Philippians. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We began this study by looking at a king sitting in comfort in the shed, clutching a spear. We ended by looking at a king spiked on a cross with a Roman spear thrust into his side. Saul represents the kingdoms of this world. They operate on envy, fear, and self-interest. They sweep away all that is moral and spiritual, and they rule by power alone. They create cultures where ordinary men and women become blind to every moral virtue. All they have left is self-interest. But as we watch that Roman spear being driven into Jesus' side, we are learning how God saves societies. Because we see in Christ's death the irrefutable evidence that there is more to life than power and self-interest. Our eyes are open to see the moral beauty of truth and justice and love, and it is that which causes us to kneel in humility at the feet of this king on a cross. We accept Christ as king not out of fear, not out of self-interest, but because he has inspired loyalty in our hearts. We have found someone who is worthy to be called king. David's actions in these chapters of 1 Samuel are a prototype of how the Lord Jesus saves the world. We're going to learn about his tactics next week. But never forget that it is an historical fact that Christianity did save the world. The early church was very much like a little band of outlaws. As Hebrews puts it, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. And yet that little band opened the eyes of an empire that was blind to everything but power and self-interest, a civilization, a civilization built on envy and the fear of losing power, and they saved it. So we're done. Thank you for your patience.
King Saul allowed sin to destroy his personality. He ended up a moral fool, a chaotic mess of paranoia, envy, and fear. Perhaps someone here tonight has lived for decades, clutching a spear, some delusion of inner power. Well, remember it was a spear that plunged into the Savior's side. So lay your spear down, better as we sang, ask God to shatter the spear. Get off your throne, repent of your delusions, your pathetic fantasies, and encounter once again the sheer moral substance of the king and the cross. Because sin will destroy you. It will destroy society. But only Christ can save both. I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing our final hymn, uh, which is um, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for how your word can speak into our lives as individuals and also explain to us the deep things that are going on in our society. And we pray, Father, that you would seal your word in our hearts, that it would pierce us, cut us to the heart, so like like those men in Acts, we might say, Lord, what would you have us do? And we pray for our culture. We pray, Lord, that it would fail fast so that men and women would repent of their fatuous ideologies that are causing such harm, that are corrupting the minds of infants, which are destroying the lives of young adults. We pray, Lord, that you would bring our society quickly to the point where it would repent and walk away from its idolatry and turn to the truth. We thank you, Lord, that you're interested in saving our society, and so we cry out to you on its behalf. We ask now that you part us in your fear, and with your blessing, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming. I'm going to ask the band to come forward, and we'll sing our final hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. We'll stand to sing this lovely hymn, and after we have sung it, Our service will be over.